Well, go ahead and take a seat, and good morning to all of you. I hope uh, it has been a good Easter morning. Uh, mine did not start out good. Um, most Sundays, my, my usual routine is to get up kind of early and uh, read over my notes a couple of times, maybe write down any good ideas that came to me in the middle of the night, uh, which is rare. But this morning, I got up, and we were out of coffee. I know, I had to wait until 6 until the nearest coffee shops opened before I could go get something. I ended up in the drive-thru in my pajamas. <laughs> then, of course, I'm worried about, you know, getting everything done on time, getting here on time. My wife is here early to practice uh, with the band, and so I'm responsible for getting our daughter here, which is never a good thing, and I'm afraid we're going to be running late, and then I've got to remember to get her curling iron because I can't curl her hair, but Jenna can, and, and all of this stuff, and I'm just, you know, I'm starting to get, like, tense about the morning, and I'm trying to get ready, and Anna's not up yet, and she hasn't stirred or anything, so I went, and I opened the door, and I turned on the lights, and I threw the cats in. I figured they'd wake her up, and I went back to my room to finish getting ready, and then I heard, a couple of minutes later, a noise from her room. She was shouting, Daddy, it's Easter! <laughs> I thought, man, you're a preacher's kid. So... <laughs> I, go, I went running in there, and I said, it's Easter. He is risen. And I didn't know if she knew the response. I, could, I couldn't remember from the year before. So I said, he is risen. And she said, he is risen indeed. It's Easter. And that was what I needed. You know, I started the morning not thinking about Easter at all, other than thinking, well, i got to say some stuff about Easter. It took another person uh, just experiencing the joy of the morning to remind me, okay, it's Easter. This is why we're here. I think sometimes all we need on Easter morning is someone else to experience it first so that we can experience it later in part through them, which is what happens to the disciple named Thomas uh, in John chapter 20. John chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning as we just spend a little bit of time looking at uh, Thomas's movement from doubt to faith to then moving out uh, John chapter 20, it's on page 1078 of that uh, Bible underneath the seat in front of you if you, like me, were running late this morning and didn't grab your Bible on the way out the door. Uh, John chapter 20, if, if I pick up in verse 24, uh, we read about the first Easter morning. Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene, and later that evening he appears to the rest of the disciples, those guys who would go on later to be called the apostles, but Thomas was missing. John 20, 24 tells us, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now when Jesus came is, of course, the five or six verses before that, the evening of that first Easter morning. Thomas wasn't there. So the other disciples, John tells us, the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Now, they didn't just tell him once. The implication here is that they told him over and over and over again. They insisted on it. We have seen Jesus. We have seen the resurrected Jesus. We have seen our master. We've seen our Lord. But Thomas said to them, look, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I think it's curious that when John wrote his account of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, 
when he wrote it down and he's sifting through all the stories that he was aware of, all the things that he had witnessed himself, all the things he had heard of from other people, that as he's going through and thinking, what, what should I write down? What should I include in order to make the point I want to, I want to make about Jesus' life? He includes this story of doubt. You know, I think if I were writing it, I would say something like, and then Jesus came back from the dead and everybody believed, even Thomas, though it took him a little bit longer. Why highlight the doubt? Most commentaries agree that as important as the resurrection is in John's telling of the gospel, this story right here is the climax. This is when it all comes to a point and the decision to doubt or believe is made. Now, we tend to refer to Thomas as Thomas the Doubter or Doubting Thomas. If we're going to be a little more charitable to him, I think we could call him Thomas the Skeptic or Thomas the guy who just wanted a little bit of proof or Thomas the guy who was left out and just wanted the same thing that all of his friends got. Right? He's asking for proof that, that Jesus really did come back from the dead and he's not asking for anything more than the other disciples got. They saw him. Thomas wasn't there. And we don't know why he wasn't there. Uh, and scripture doesn't really give us any clue. We're not supposed to condemn him for his absence. We're just taking it, taking it on face value. He wasn't there. We don't know why. But because he wasn't there, it doesn't matter how much his friends insist that they have seen Jesus. Uh, he refuses to believe. He refuses to believe unless he's given the same evidence they were given, unless he can see Jesus in the flesh, unless he can explore the, the, the wounds in his hands, the sword slash in his side, and make sure that this really is, this isn't just a lookalike. This is really the crucified and resurrected Christ. And you really can't blame the guy for asking for a little bit of help in believing. I mean, who of us, if, if we were following a, a revolutionary leader who was then assassinated by the government, who of us would believe that he's now back from the dead? Resurrections didn't happen all the time. We wouldn't find it any more plausible then as we do now. All Thomas is asking for is a little proof. Proof that this isn't just a power play by his friends or maybe a delusion brought upon by their grief. Just... Show me that it actually happened. Now, nowhere else in the New Testament does anyone make uh, this kind of demand for validation of Jesus' resurrection. Thomas had said, you, you may have noticed, he says, unless I see, I will never believe. And it's an emphatic negative. I will never, no, never believe unless I see it, unless you can prove it to me. And we can maybe be a little sympathetic to what's going on in Thomas's head. I mean, the last couple of days before this have been traumatic. An awful arrest on Thursday night, the miscarriage of justice in the early hours of Friday, the brutal beating and crucifixion that evening. To Thomas, it would have been, well, to all of them, it would have been like waking from a dream into a nightmare. Dreams were over. The promise was gone. There's no more hope. 
You know, for a while there, it seemed like Jesus, maybe he really could have done it. Maybe he really could have have inspired the Jewish people to throw off imperial Roman rule and usher in a second golden age that, that the Old Testament seemed to hint towards. Maybe he was the one, and then Rome did what Rome does to every other Messiah. Just about as quickly as any revolutionary pops their head up, Rome crushes them back down. It's the way it always is. It's the way it always will be. I mean, how would you respond if someone told you that the man you thought would overthrow Rome was crushed by them instead? Of course we wouldn't believe in anything as ludicrous as a resurrection, no matter what our friend said. Here's the thing, though. It actually happened. Do you believe it? Can you believe it? Well, it's a week later now in the narrative of John chapter 20. Again, the disciples have gathered together. This time, unlike last time, Thomas is with them. Kind of makes me wonder, why was Thomas there? He didn't believe them. He didn't think that what they said was true was actually true. These friends of his, people he used to think were credible, are now spreading all sorts of ridiculous stories about a guy who died and came back to life. And Thomas is not believing. He's not, he's not seeing the proof of what they're talking about. So why, why be there? Why hang out with them? I don't know the answer other than to say that I imagine those disciples who saw Jesus in the previous verses, 19 through 23, who were breathed on by Jesus and received the Holy Spirit, there's something in their eyes There's something in their face, something in the way they carry themselves, in the way they speak, some sincerity in their voices when they say, Thomas, he's alive, won't you believe that Thomas can't help but want whatever it is they've found. So he's there with them. They're in another room, doors locked. This time, Jesus shows up. Which is what Thomas wanted, but I'm not sure if it's what Thomas expected. What he wanted, of course, was to see Jesus for himself, test him out, prove that this guy, this person, the rest of the disciples thought they saw is really the resurrected Jesus. And then Jesus shows up, and he says, peace be with you. Which is ironic, because the doors are locked. They're afraid of something. Thomas is there, and there's no peace in him at the moment, but Jesus shows up. He says, peace be with you, and then he turns and he looks right at Thomas. And he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and place it in my side. And Jesus looks Thomas right in the eyes, and he invites him to test him out. I'm right here. Test me out. See if it's really me. Come on, Thomas, you said you needed proof. Well, here it is. And Jesus tells him, do not disbelieve, but believe. Don't continue in your unbelief, but have faith. Believe. Don't continue in your doubt. Put your doubts to rest. Just believe. 
Now, when we use the phrase, just believe, what we're usually doing is telling someone to believe something in the face of no evidence, or even in the face of contrary evidence to what we're telling them to believe. You know, we tell our kids, just believe in yourself, and you'll break through some obstacle or barrier that's keeping you from doing what you want, as if belief is all it took. We tell one another, you got to believe in your dreams. You're not going to get anywhere if you don't believe in your dreams and what you really want, if you're going to find success and fulfillment. Uh, as, again, as if just belief were the only thing holding us back. And sometimes we even tell people, just believe in God, and, and maybe proof will come later. Just believe. Muster it up. But Jesus is looking at Thomas, and he's not telling him, just believe in any of those senses. He's telling Thomas, look, here's the evidence. Here's what you said you needed in order to take as fact the fact that I've risen from the dead, that I've come out of the grave. If, if seeing me and testing me is what you need to understand and believe, then believe. Look at how Thomas responds. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Turns out Thomas doesn't need any of the tests that he thought he needed. He said, I, I, I'm going to I'm gonna have to touch, I'm going to have to feel, I'm going to have to examine, I'm, I, I need to see the specific evidence. Show me the nail holes, show me the spear where it went in. I'm, I'm going to have to see it if I'm going to believe it. And instead, he ends up face to face with Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. And I think for the rest of his life, Thomas celebrated Easter one week after everyone else. Because it took an extra week for, the, for the, the fact of the resurrection to come home to him, my Lord and my God. Now, we say that all the time, but no one had called Jesus that before. No one had put the two together in the other three Gospels. No one really connects the dots uh, this clearly between Jesus' resurrection and his deity. They worship him in the other three Gospels. But nowhere does anyone explicitly say Jesus is God after they see him resurrected. Instead, there's sort of this sense of, of awe, of overwhelming wonder. O almost like the, the, the wonder is, it's like, okay, well, our, our revolutionary leader is back. Apparently, he can't be killed. Let's storm the gates now. That actually comes through in Acts 1 when the disciples say to Jesus, like, hey, when are we going to take over? He's like, not again. That's not why I'm here. But Thomas Thomas the skeptic, Thomas the guy who just wanted a little bit of proof, Thomas goes from the deepest skepticism pictured in the New Testament to the first and clearest revelation of who Jesus is in an instant. In a moment, the guy who doubted the most sees the most clearly. Now, it was nothing new to call Jesus Lord. Uh, Lord just means master, guy in charge, boss. Uh, that was nothing new. But to call Jesus my Lord and my God, to put the two together, is to tie this understanding of the Messiah, the one who is to come and redeem Israel, the suffering servant with God himself. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he's, he's not calling Jesus his boss. He's saying, you, you are my God. You are the God I've read of in the Old Testament. You are Yahweh, the, the one who is who he is. You are the covenant-keeping, faithful God. You are my Lord and my God. 
the beginning of the gospel according to St. John begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The gospel according to St. John begins its ending with Jesus looking at Thomas and Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. Now, what do you say? It would be easier, of course, if Jesus were just Lord or just another person who maybe resuscitated, somebody who maybe there was a big trick, maybe there was a swap, maybe there was something, uh, something different that happened that we could explain away naturally and, and we could say, you know, Jesus, great guy, great teacher, I'm going to follow his teachings, there's a lot of peace and harmony in that, but, but as soon as we say he's not just our Lord, he's also our God, everything changes. We don't get to say Lord of Jesus without also saying God. That's a choice you have to make. That's a decision that weighs on you this Easter morning as you consider the story we are reading and we are singing about. Is he Lord or is he Lord and God? For Thomas, of course, it becomes clear in an instant this man who I used to follow and obey as, as perhaps the, the king of Israel is now not just the king, but the Lord, the God of Israel. And in verse 29, Jesus responds to Thomas's declaration with these words I think are meant very kindly. He says, Thomas, have you, have you believed because you have seen me? The implied answer is yes. Have you seen because you believed me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, if Jesus were just another person, even another person who was resurrected and then died again sometime later, he would be dead, he would be gone, and none of us would ever get the chance to see him. Much like Shakespeare, none of us will ever see him, but we're fairly convinced that he existed. None of us will ever see da Vinci or Einstein, Columbus or Beethoven, but people we trust have told us that people by those names actually lived and did at least most of the things we're told that they did. And we take it on faith based on the validity of the testimony of people we trust. But Jesus is not just another person, not just another human. According to the Bible, he is the living God of the universe, the one who holds all things together. He's the one who speaks to us in a thousand echoes of his voice through the beauty we see around us, the justice we long for, the sense of spirituality that we cling to, the relationships we desire, the truth that we want to experience. He's the one who plays in 10,000 places, the one we meet face-to-face in Scripture, in the saints, in the church, in one another. Blessed are those who have not seen in the flesh and tested for themselves, and yet believe. My Lord and my God, says Thomas, what do we say? By the end of John's gospel, Jesus has authenticated who he is and proved his resurrection with every kind of proof imaginable, empirical proof, visual proof, tactile proof, Historical proof, relational proof, existential proof. These stories are not lies breathed through silver. He is alive. He's proved it. He is risen. Now what? 
John follows up this story of Thomas coming from, from the deepest skepticism to the highest praise by giving his overall thesis statement for the whole book, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the, the ones he's chosen, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you sat down and you read the entirety of the gospel according to St. John, you would get to these verses and finally say, so that's the point. That's the point. That's the reason why John sat down and wrote. John wants you to believe. Not just believe in this vague sense we talked about earlier. Now, for John, faith, belief, is not a vague sort of trust. Faith has content. It means believing that. Faith means believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Faith means believing that Jesus is the promised redeemer of the nation of Israel, that he is the ultimate deliverer. Faith means believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man. Now, we take all those things and, and we tend to think of them together, especially if you've grown up in the church. But for the, the Jews of this day, this was not at all expected. It was not thought that the Messiah would be God himself, that the captain of the rescue ship sent by God to save us while we were drowning would be God himself and that he would drown in the process. So John's conception of the Messiah, echoing Thomas's, my Lord and my God, is fuller and richer than anyone had to this point expected. So John writes, he wants you to understand. He wants you to see in the words of this book, he wants you to see Jesus come face to face with him. And having seen him, to believe, and in the believing, to have life in his name. You know, we talk often about how Jesus' sacrifice delivered us from sin. Absolutely, amen and amen, that is absolutely true. But he also not just delivered us from sin, but delivered us to life. He didn't just deliver us from sin and say, okay, go figure out the rest on your own, have a great life. He said, no, I've saved you from sin, now I have a life for you. Life, specifically, is a theme that's often repeated throughout John's gospel. The very beginning, John writes, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. I am the bread of life, says Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And when Jesus says those words, he's not talking to dead men and women. He's talking to people who are alive. So when he says to people who are alive, I've come to give you life, you think for a second, well, what kind of life is he talking about? Obviously not this life. I already have this life. Is it this life only a little longer? Maybe this life stretched out into eternity? No, he says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. He's not talking about this life extended or perhaps magnified. He's talking about a qualitatively new kind of life entirely, the kind of life that's nothing compared, the kind of life we live now is nothing compared to the true life that Jesus holds out for us. We're like a child seeing a picture of the beach 
and smiling and then standing in the presence of the waves and being terrified. The life that Jesus has for us is as qualitatively different as a picture is from the reality. But it's the life we were always intended to have, the life we were created for. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he offers us a way back into the story we were made for. You know, we humans were like characters in a novel who rebel against the author, thinking that we can tell a better story about ourselves than the one who created and dreamed us up in the first place. Uh, So within this story that we are writing of ourselves, our author has written in warning after warning, sacrifice after sacrifice, trying to woo us back to him, but we resist. Uh, We even deny his existence and distract ourselves to drown out his characteristic style uh, written in our lives. Until at last in Jesus, God writes himself into the story and lets us do to him what we always wanted to do, which is to kill him and rid ourselves of his meddling once and for all. But, surprise, the story doesn't end there. The author rises from the death that we have caused him, and instead of writing us out once and, all, once and for all for our hubris, uh, he, through his death, offers to write us a new story, to write us back into the story that he had intended for us in the first place. These are written that you may believe, says John. All the stories in the book are written down so that we may believe, so that we will take these words to those who don't. Show them who Jesus is. When I was a lot younger, my grandmother died. She was vacuuming and uh, told my grandfather that she wasn't feeling very well. Uh, So he took her to the ER, and while she was there waiting to be seen, she coded, which is a good place to die because they were able to resuscitate her. And they put in a pacemaker, and we got another 10 or 15 years with my grandmother before she finally and ultimately passed. And in those, those 10 or 15 years, however long it was, because she had been to the edge of death and back, we were much more intentional about spending time with her. She had been to the edge of death, and now we had a mission. Uh, there was something we needed to do. And every time she was sitting there and the pacemaker kind of gave her that jump, she's like, whoop, I'm alive again. We were grateful. It was a reminder again, we've still got time. We've got something we need to do because our grandma's still here. How much more so uh, this man who once was dead and not just resuscitated but resurrected gives us something to do. If that really happened... The implications are world-changing. What do we do with an Easter Sunday? We get together once a year and remind ourselves that the one who was dead is now alive again. He is not just risen from the dead, but he has risen our king. What do we do on an Easter Sunday and after an Easter Sunday? We worship Christ, the risen king, and we go out to show the world the life that we have found. In these few verses we've read of Thomas 
moving from the deepest skepticism and doubt uh, to the highest and most poignant praise. Uh, But it doesn't end there. These are written that you and you and you and you and anyone who will read may believe. And so we go.